According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him at peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, we're still looking at these early verses. And uh, talking about verses 1 through 4, I guess, 1 through 5 here this morning. Uh, got 33 verses in the chapter, so we're still in the first uh, first fifth of the chapter. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to uh, to bless our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth. Thankful, Father, for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding. Set aside distractions. Let this be a time of reverence and worship and devotion before you. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I'm not going to uh, review what we've done already. Uh, Under point one, we looked at the distinctions, the contrast between previous chapters and this chapter, and Talked about those already, what sets apart chapter 15. And then we got into verse 1, under point 2, how verse 1 preaches itself. This is a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And you can uh, verbally respond in one of two ways. When someone says something ugly to you, when someone is verbally attacking you, if you are the object of verbal anger, how do you respond? And it's not fun. It hurts. You don't want to be the object of verbal anger. Uh, but you want to deflect it. You don't want to return it. You don't want to absorb it. You want to deflect it. And that's what we studied when we saw that the gentle answer deflects. It turns away wrath. But the harsh word, the painful word, is uh, just makes matters worse. And uh, that's, the, that's the, the impact on this. Because if, uh, if you're receiving a, a verbal anger, then that hurts. And uh, you don't want to hurt. And, and uh, what humanity wants to do in carnality, when we're out of fellowship... Because it's hurt us, we want to hurt them back. We want them to hurt because we've been hurt. And that's wrong. So we don't want to return that harsh word, that painful word. All that does is fan the flames. When we look at verse 2, there's uh, the second half kind of preaches itself, where the mouth of fools spouts folly, of course. Uh, what do you expect? It's like, do you expect an apple tree to give you an orange? <laughs> do you expect uh, a dog to give birth to kittens? It's just that's not what they do right? Dogs are going to give birth to puppies and cats are going to give birth to kittens and banana trees are going to give you bananas. That's what they do. And fools are going to spout folly. That's what they do. And out of the mouth of fools uh, is going to be the spout of, uh, of follies. But not the tongue of the wise makes knowledge beautiful, makes knowledge good or acceptable. And so much of what we spent last week talking about is the beautiful Word of God and how the Word of God already is beautiful and we make it more beautiful because it is a, uh, it is a, it is a causative verb. The hyphil stem in Hebrew is a causative stem. And so you cause something to be beautiful. 
Although the Word of God has intrinsic goodness, wise preaching makes it even more attractive. That's like, you know, putting makeup on a, on a beautiful girl. She's already beautiful to start with, and then you do the hair and the makeup and the dresses and the jewelry and all the, all the accessories and everything. And so it's not that she was ugly when you started. She was pretty when you started, but now you're, you're beautifying something that's already beautiful. Does that make sense? And so that's what we do with the Word of God. The Word of God is already beautiful, already has an intrinsic beauty, but then we beautify it even more as it is taught through wisdom. And so that's what we do there. And and so by beautifying something that's already beautiful, we trigger something. We trigger a response. We we uh it, it is it's a causative beauty that triggers a response. It is appreciated, it's also responded to. And that's significant as well, see. So there should be some kind of a a reaction to the Word of God. It's designed to have a reaction. And that's why we have sensibilities. That's why we have, we're designed to have those kind of senses, right? And so it should be that, that when you, when you, when you smell something, you know, that the bacon is on the grill and you just, you smell it, right? And you just, ah, and so that good smell triggers a uh, a response and and then you start getting hungry and then you start right and or if you if you hear something that sounds beautiful it triggers a response or uh, maybe music that has a, a response and it soothes you or or something attractive visually attractive that you look at should trigger a response an appropriate response and whereby when you see something beautiful and you observe it you can appreciate it for its own sake and then whatever that response is, it might be that you want to share it with somebody else, and maybe that you want to celebrate it. You may want to thank God for what He's provided there in the Word of God. So there are a lot of triggers that we respond to biblically and appropriately. And that's uh, it is a goad to action. Beautified knowledge is a goad to action. The Word of God is is a goad, and it should be prompting us in, in how we live our lives and how we make our decisions and what we do. The Word of God should be a constant goad in a good way. Beautified knowledge is a goad to action. All right. Then when we look to verse 3 and we see that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good, that's an important principle for us. Living the Word of God is essential given His constant observation over us. We cannot hide from God. If we try to, give, you know, it's not going to work. He's going to see it anyway. The, and, uh, and everything we do to try to uh, avoid His observation is just not going to work. All right. Did you go to YouTube and find that song I told you about last week? Anyone? Oh, it's called I Cannot Hide from God by Tim Duncan. Yeah, you've got to go to YouTube and find Tim Duncan, I Cannot Hide from God. It's a wonderful song. And uh, anyway, if you don't want to spoil it, then don't spoil it. But I'm trying to get the piano music for it so that Molly can play and Jacob can sing it because it's designed as a bass solo. And uh, if I can get Jacob to sing it on a Sunday morning, I think that would be really cool. But all right. Anyway, here's our verses for the omnipresence of God and our accountability before Him, uh, not only here in Proverbs 15, verses 3 and 11, but we've previously had it in Proverbs 5, uh, 21. And uh, is that an answer to prayer I'm seeing on the back row? Outstanding. All right, thank you. All right. All right. Well, the omnipresence of God uh, knew where those keys were, so that's good news. 
missing keys from Sunday to Wednesday. That's a, that's a frightening thing. All right. Job 34, Jeremiah 32, Hebrews 4.13. I, I love all these passages that all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. So if we think that we can, uh, we can hide from God, we can't. And uh, I'm not going to read all of these, but the one in Hebrews 4 I think is significant. We were just there in our Hebrews series on Sunday morning that uh, you know, we boldly approach the throne of grace that uh, we are to be diligent. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, and that's what it's designed to do. So we're accountable before the Word of God. And we can act like, oh, I didn't hear it, but we should have heard it because he that has an ear, let him hear. And if he's communicating a message and this flock is receiving that message, then every member of this flock is accountable for receiving that message loud and clear and living it out. And if not, it's going to be piercing. And uh, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you can avoid your pastor and you can not keep things hidden and, and there's things that the pastor doesn't know because the pastor-teacher gift is not, a, not an omnipresent gift or an omniscient gift or whatever. And, uh, and then, uh, but you can't hide from God. He knows about it. He knows about all these things going on. He's fully aware and we are accountable. So living the Word of God is essential. Which then gets us now back to... Uh, Proverbs, and we deal now with the tree of life. In 15.4, we have the fourth and final tree of life reference in the book of Proverbs. Starting in chapter 3 and verse 18, we saw it again. That was the only one, by the way, in the parental wisdom section of the book. And then in 11.30, 13.12, and 15.4, we have the other three places where the tree of life is mentioned. And in this final reference, we have a contrast between the tree of life and a crushed spirit. A crushed spirit. That doesn't sound good, so (laughs) we better learn what that's about. All right? Because I don't want to have a crushed spirit. You don't want to have a crushed spirit. Nobody does. Uh, And uh, because there's broken spirits, there's crushed spirits. And I think those distinctions are are interesting as well. It just depends on how how forceful the language is on on that. But um, tree of life. If you do your search for tree of life, you're going to find that you're going to find the tree of life in Genesis, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then they're kicked out of the garden, and we never see the tree of life again until the book of Proverbs. We've got these four references in the book of Proverbs, and then it goes away. We never see the tree of life again until Revelation 21 and 22, until the end of the book. See, and so to me, that's extraordinary, and uh, I want to spend today looking at these things. So, um, let's start with Genesis and the commands, because this tree of life that gets planted, and then the command that's given. Um, so Genesis chapter two. I don't think there's a tree of life reference in chapter one, but chapter two, when they're given this command. So pick up in verse 15. So the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. To cultivate it and to keep it. And I'm not going to spell it out now, but just keep this in your thinking because that keeping it is coming back in in the next Proverbs verse. Uh, 
All right, and uh, we're going to talk about it in fifteen uh, five. We're going to talk about a, a, a particular idiom that's coming up. So stay tuned. Uh, so the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden. Now, who planted the garden? Did the man plant the garden? God planted the garden. That's right. So we have a whole planet, and then in a particular region is uh, is the garden. So um, you might notice that in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So however the rest of the geography of planet Earth goes at this point, we have, we have boundaries, river boundaries for some of this land, and it's described here. Okay, now this is before the flood, so the geography is probably different than it is now. We have no expectation that these rivers, although they have the same name as the rivers that, that we have today, that they may not have even been the very same rivers as far as that goes, um, or certainly would have flown different directions. Um, anyway, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the setting. That's the setting for humanity's testing in innocence. They're going to be sinless, and they're going to be innocent, and they're going to be tested in that, in that scope of that innocence. And it involves these trees. Okay, And then as far as the rest of this goes, um, I am so eager to teach Genesis someday. Maybe after Hebrews we'll do Genesis. Um, but but there's, uh, there's, there's water rights, there's boundaries, there's territory. You know, this side of the river is us, that side of the river is not us. It's you, it's them. Okay, And, uh, and so these rivers are d- dividing. And uh, anyway... So the name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Now did Adam name, Adam didn't name any of these. He named the animals, but he didn't name any of these. So God planted the garden. God named Eden. God named Havilah. God named Gihon. God named, you know, the land of Cush. And so uh, Havilah is, uh, that's, that's where God put the gold. Now who's in charge of all this? God's in charge of all this. I mean, this is the land, these are the rivers, he put them there. These are the, the natural resources, he put them there. And if he wants the Havilah people, Havilites, if he wants the Havilah people to have gold, he put the gold there. Likewise, uh, the gold of that land is good, the bedellium, the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, it flows around the whole land of Cush. All right, so there's Cush. Cush is not Havilah. Cush is not Eden. These are different places. And different places are designed for different people. And, uh, and they have different things. So whatever Cush has, and we're not even told what Cush has, maybe Havilah will share some of their gold, will trade some of their gold, right? That's what commerce is about. So well, we've got all this gold, but we don't have whatever. You have that, we want that. And so they engage in free trade. And then uh, the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. So we have a river, we have the land. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So the Lord God took the man and put him not into Havilah, not in Cush, not in Assyria, but in Eden. Put him in Eden to cultivate, into the Garden of Eden, to cultivate it and to keep it. 
Because remember, this world is a wilderness. It's a wild place. Even without sin, this world is a wild place. And uh, to have dominion of the earth, to subdue it, takes work. So, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. All right, so he's in a garden. There's all kinds of all kinds of trees. Every tree that's pleasing for sight and good for food. So I think he had the full spectrum of everything. Apples, oranges, bananas, you name it. He had every tree there was, was there in the garden. And God put it there in the garden. There was also the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what happens if he eats from any of those, Right? We, there's a command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There is no command about the tree of life. There's no command to not eat from it. There's no command to eat from it. There's no, uh, it says any tree you may freely eat except this one. So if we've got a whole bunch of normal trees, two special trees, and only one special tree you can't eat from, what about the other special tree? obviously they were able to eat from the tree of life and they were expected to eat from the tree of life. It was there for them. And the indication is they never ate from it. And I find that interesting. All right. And then, of course, he's alone, he needs a helper, so uh, this is what happens here. Uh, In verse 19, all the animals are brought to him and whatever to see whatever he would call them. And so God gives Adam a delegated naming responsibility, and Adam has to name everything that's under his dominion. And so he's going to name these, uh, these animals. So he, he calls them you know, cow, elephant, goat, whatever. He's naming all the animals, right? By their kind. He's not giving personal names to every individual goat. He's just naming, the, that's a goat, okay? That's a cow, that's an elephant. And and God agreed. God said, "All right, that's that's the uh, that's what it's called." But none of them were suitable to be his helpmate. None of them were suitable. I mean, they all had things going for them. You know, the the horse can you can ride it, or the ox can pull a plow. I mean, you can do other things with these animals, but none of them are going to be the helpmate corresponding to him. None of them are going to be his partner in. Uh, in uh, 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 naming the name of Christ or or exhibiting the image of God. That's what I'm trying to say. Imaging God. Okay? And so he gives him a partner, a helper, suitable for him, corresponding to him. And, uh, and I think that's important. God wanted Adam to see the need before he provided the provision for that need. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. So this is the order now. And in a, this is what's lost. Modern feminism has lost this, and it's creeping into evangelical churches. And they just fired a seminary president. Um, let's understand this. Man had the assignment, the woman is his helper. Together they image God. Together they bear the image of God. Together they raise up the next generation. But the man isn't her helper, she's his helper, and that order is significant. All right, and so he loses a rib, and he names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
And they hate that to this day. The feminists do. The militant feminists do. That's why they change it to W-O-M-Y-N, women. And uh, they don't want the men word to be in embedded within the woman word. Right? So it's not woman, M-A-N, because that includes man. It's got to be M-Y-N, because why? Because it's not an A. <laughs> and it's not a man. All right. Nobody here, of course. You, don't, you guys know what I'm talking about, but those people are, are out there. All right. She shall be called. Now keep in mind, he gives her her name. So what's the, what's the authority? What's the sovereignty? What's the, what's the divine design? See? And uh, the, the, the right to give a name. When, you know, I gave names to all four of my children. Nobody told me what I had to name them. See, Sharon and I just came up with ideas and agreed on them, and boom, that's the name. You know, if you get a dog, you give the dog whatever name you want. Say, usually. <laughs> I don't know. Bill bought a dog, and it already came with a name, because, I don't know. Anyway, it seems to me... If you're the sovereign, you give it a name. And if you don't like the name, then you rename it. Because you're, you're the sovereign. You're in charge. And that's, that's exactly why Satan tries to rename everything and, and put his stamp of, of authority on what it is he's redefining. He's going to redefine marriage. And if he's successful and he redefines it, he renames it, it's, it demonstrates uh, the sway that he has on our culture. All right, now the point is, as we get to this, the, the man and the woman are naked, they're not ashamed, and then they eat from the wrong tree, and it's just downhill from there. They never eat from the right tree. Now look, when they get driven out of the garden, the danger that God talks about here amongst himself, um, in verse 22 of chapter 3, so I'm skipping over a lot, but you understand, Satan tempted them, they ate, right? Satan tempted them, the woman ate first, she offered it to the man, he ate, and once he ate, then both of their eyes were open. Pay attention to that. So the woman ate in verse 6 of chapter 3. He ate later in verse 6 of chapter 3. And it's not until verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened. Her eyes were not opened when she ate. Adam had the opportunity to bless her. Adam had the opportunity to be her kinsman redeemer. He had the opportunity to provide for her redemption as an unfallen Adam, as the first Adam. He had the opportunity. But of course he didn't. He, he, he joined her in her rebellion. And so then the eyes of both of them were opened. Again, that's the precedent. That's the order. And uh, different things there. All right. This, by the way, all came up last week in a discussion about women pastors. Why can't women be pastors? Because 1 Timothy 2 uh, says women can't be pastors. And they say, well, that was just cultural. That was just first century. It was not first century. It took it back to Adam and Eve. Paul said it was Adam who was created first, not Eve. And Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was accountable. And that whole doctrinal point is a theological point that tells us it has nothing to do with culture. It has everything to do with the design of humanity. That uh, her eyes weren't open until he sinned. So there's an accountability there. And if you try to substitute a woman pastor for a male pastor, you're going to lose that accountability for the flock. All right. 
but they don't eat from the tree of life. Why, what, why did they have a tree of life? What could that have been? Now, um, after they sin and after God clothes, gives them clothing, because they're hiding, they're naked, and they, they do fig leaves, but they're still naked, even with the fig leaves. And uh, so God has to kill an animal to dress them in, in, to cover their nakedness. And, um, and that's what he does here. So, um, down to verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now that's a terrible, terrible thing. And God contemplates that and says, no, that is not going to happen. We're not going to have Adam and Eve in fallen bodies live forever in fallen bodies. To be sinners living forever in a body of sin, that's not permissible. That's unthinkable as far as God is concerned. And yet, the potential was there. This is a a counterfactual, a what if. If they did, then this would be. And God said, no. If they did, he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, and eat and physically live forever in that fallen body. How unthinkable is that? And anyway, so he drives him out. And then I think he puts a cherub there with a flaming sword and there's not going to be a human that's going to get past that. And I think that that stayed there until the flood. We never, it's never mentioned again. It's only hinted at. It's, it's not clear why Eve... Uh, it's not clear... There's a lot of legends, a lot of... Um, the rabbis speculated in chapter 4 about why did Cain... Was he trying to sneak around a back entrance into the Garden of Eden? Or why, why did he go to the east? Why did he go behind? There's some obscure geographic references in Genesis 4 when Cain settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, you know, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Eden's already in the east, and now he goes east of east. Why was he going east of east? And what's the point? And, and, and why are these things facing west the way they're facing? Why does the tabernacle face the way it faces? Why does the temple face the way it faces? And what's, there's, there's a lot of uh, concepts that we don't have all the answers, but we, 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 we think about them. You know, the right hand of God. Why is the right hand of God in the recesses of the north? What is, what is up with that in, uh, in, in heavenly geography? Um, we don't know. Okay, we don't know. But the, the rabbis pondered that by going east of Eden, that maybe he was looking for a back door, looking for a secret way in, or some, some way to get around that angel at the gate with a, with a flaming sword. But um, anyway, if there's only one gate, there's only one gate, and God designs things like that. He designs only one gate, and that's, that's how God works. But we still have to ask ourselves, this tree of life then, what was it? to eat and live forever. What was it? What was different with the tree of life that was different than an apple tree, an orange tree, a banana tree, any other normal tree? There was something not normal. There were two special trees. What was that tree of life about? Okay, Because it gets replanted on the new earth. And notice the other special tree does not get replanted on the new earth. 
So let's go now to Revelation 21. We go from Genesis to Revelation. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And I find it interesting because we have Genesis 1 that's got a lot of groundwork done with creation and then details that come in Genesis 2 as per the tree of life. Same thing with Revelation. We've got 21, a lot of groundwork is laid with the new heavens and the new earth and, and uh, the heavenly Jerusalem and all that. But then we get more details in chapter 22. And so uh, the tree of life is absent from Genesis 1, but, but featured in Genesis 2. The tree of life is absent in, Genesis 20, in Revelation 21, but it's featured in Revelation 22. So, Revelation 22, just so that you know, this is after the millennium, this is after the destruction of the heavens and the earth, this is after the great white throne. Just notice... The, the only thing I really want to spotlight in, in 21 is the fact that there's no more death, no more crying, no more pain. These first things have passed away. So uh, Revelation 21.1, I saw new heavens and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. There was no longer any sea. We've got a new geography. We've got a new earth. And even though it's got a river, there's no sea. Okay? So similar to uh, Adam's earth. There were rivers, no sea until the flood. And um, behold, uh, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They will be his people. He, God himself, will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So this is now our context. After the great white throne, there's no more death. Every unbeliever that's ever lived or ever will live, every unbeliever is already in the lake of fire for all eternity after the great white throne judgment. The heavens and earth have passed away. We have new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is no more sin. There is no more death ever again on the new earth. The new earth will never have a sinner on it. All right. So that we've got to see that. No more death. But then we have a tree of life. So we show. Uh, so now we get down to chapter twenty-two, and he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this is going to be pretty spectacular because on this earth, I mean, every river you got to follow. Where do the rivers go? They got to go somewhere. Where do they go? Do they eventually do they reach a sea somewhere? Somewhere? There's no sea. Okay. So where does this river go? I don't know. Um. But there's a river. And in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. So we've got more detail here than we ever had in Genesis, but it's the same tree of life. It's replanted now on the new earth, on either side of the river. That's a big tree. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm guessing it's near the origin of the of the river, so the river's not too deep yet, it's not too wide yet. But if it's near the headwaters of that river, then uh yeah, there it is. And uh a fruit every month, yielding its fruit every month. So that's kind of cool. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
Now wait a minute, there's no more death, there's no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain. Why do I need healing of the nations? Okay, And so these are all the details we have to put together. This is why the fullness of time study is a deep study and one that gets a lot of resistance and makes your head explode. Okay, Because healing, even without an injury, even without sickness, even without death, we still have issues of health, do we not? And so the, the term healing can be rendered health, it's a perfectly valid translation, for the health of the nation. Again, Adam and Eve had provision for the tree of life, for their health, for their healing, even to live forever. Understand? Okay? And so these things, I think, become, become clues for us. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And yet, remember, there's no longer any curse. There is no longer any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve Him. And so as we look at this tree of life, we realize why it was originally planted on Adam's earth helps us to understand why it will be replanted on the new earth. What's the necessity if there's no death? If Adam and Eve were immortal, why did they need the tree of life? Okay, well, were Adam and Eve immortal? Let's stop and ask that. Let's stop and ask that. What, what do we mean by immortal? Mortality, immortality. We, yes, we cast off mortality to put on immortality. But wait a minute. What was mortality? Was mortality a, caused by the fall into sin? Is mortality a, a, a definition of, of sin? What, what is mortality? Maybe, is it possible that mortality was by design, that when Adam and Eve were created, they were sinless, they were innocent, but I believe they were still mortal. They were mortal. They had physical bodies. The fact is, they had to eat. They were eating things, right? They were, Adam and Eve were told to eat. And what happens if they didn't eat? They would die. They would starve to death. Anything that doesn't eat starves to death. So, well, they were sinless. They were perfect. They couldn't die. Says who? They were in mortal bodies. We bear the image of the earthly. We will bear the image of the heavenly. But bearing the image of the earthly is not a consequence of the sin because they, they had that image before they sinned. They were in the image of God before they sinned. They're still in the image of God after they sinned. Bearing the image of the earthly, the mortality. See, what if Adam would have fallen out of a tree? So he climbs up the banana tree, he gets a banana, he comes down. But instead of coming down slowly, he slips and he falls. And he breaks his leg. Well, he couldn't break his leg. He was sinless. He was perfect. Wait a minute. Okay? Let me tell you something. And we can prove this biblically. People just don't want to stop and think it through. Jesus was sinless and perfect. And he still bled when he was pierced. He, he was still injured. He still had a thorn of crowns upon his head. He still had a spear thrust into his side. He had nails pierced into his hands. Try telling me that a sinless, perfect person is immortal. Wait a minute. Jesus was sinless and perfect and mortal. He still died. Adam was mortal. Eve was mortal. Before they fell, before they sinned. Mortality is not a consequence of sin. When he said, on the day you eat of it, you will die, that's spiritual death and only spiritual death. 
has nothing to do with physical death. Has nothing to do with injuries. Has nothing to do with 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 health. See, and so for mortality to live forever, mortality needs the tree of life. Mortality needs the tree of life and the water of life. Okay, and that's why we have the water of life, the river of life, the tree of life. And this is going to make provision for a thousand generations of those who are going to keep having babies for a thousand generations. And how are they going to live long enough to see the thousand generations? You know, nowadays we do well to see, you know, the fourth or fifth. You know, I mean, if you, if you, if you get five simultaneous generations right now, it's pretty rough on the extreme ends of that, right? That's pretty rough because the, the oldest one is not as active as they used to be, right? And the youngest one is just newborn, okay? So we're talking, so as far as active generations that can work together and cooperate together, that can be out there in industry and producing things and, and, you know, building products and doing all kinds of stuff, that's, you're going to, maybe three. Maybe three. Because by the time you get to that fourth generation, old enough to work productively in the, in the culture, then the older generation's retired and done and, Right? But imagine a thousand generations. Young, healthy, working, producing. Can you imagine? What, what, what would our engineers be doing today if uh, Isaac Newton was still doing science? If, uh, if uh, Alexander Graham Bell was still heading up his research lab? Imagine all of these Generations still alive, still working, still producing, still contributing. That's, that's a fun thing to think about. And uh, keeping their youth uh, by the, uh, and, their, and their vitality, keeping their vitality, even though they're mortal, keeping their vitality uh, by means of the leaves and the fruit and the tree of life and the water of life as is described here. All right. So that's what we're dealing with. That's the tree of life. That's the literal tree of life. And it's only featured in Genesis. And then it's gone after the fall. We don't no longer have access to it. And it's featured in Revelation on the new earth. Nowhere else in the Bible is the literal tree of life mentioned. But in Proverbs, we have four metaphoric uses of the tree of life. Metaphors. Four metaphors that are used, and so we can look at those. Proverbs 3.18. And we'll see what these are about. Because this just kind of comes up out of nowhere. As uh, David is teaching Solomon in the parental wisdom of Proverbs 3. And... um, So the chapter begins with, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Keep in mind, keep, guard. That's the same, that that Garden of Eden message I told you to keep that in mind. That's what we're talking about. Shamer is the verb to keep or to guard, to observe. And it comes up again and again. So keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And then this is why these are the concepts that the tree of life speaks to. 
length of days, years of life, and peace they will add to you. So that's quality of life, length of life, and um, harmony with God, peace they will add to you. And so then we've got some other verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. The Christian way of life is just a walk day by day, walking by faith with God. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. Divine guidance as we live as believers day by day. Humility. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. These are all just parental admonishments. Every parent wants to inculcate these into the thinking of every child. Um, again, my son, in verse 11, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. There's going to be times that God's reproof is going to hit you, and it needs to. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we quit being knuckleheads. And so we have that coming up in chapter 15 as well. Um, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. If you don't have that discipline, that means God doesn't love you. He's disowning you. He denies you. He's calling you a bastard. He says, you're not my son. But if you're a legitimate son, then he loves you. Then he disciplines you and he keeps you on the, the short uh, the short rope, right? Keeps you on the straight and narrow. So all these exhortations here to my son. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. This is what we're designed to do. For her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. When you're training a son up and you're ready to launch him into his own generation, Bible doctrine has to be priority number one. Whatever else as far as career and money and wealth and housing and all of that, those are the second things. First things are first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. So uh, we're not Adam and Eve anymore. We're not in innocence. We're not in the Garden of Eden. We can't reach out and take a fruit from the tree of life. What can we reach out and take? The Word of God. Today, tomorrow, every day. And that's why this tree of life is the metaphor that's used in this way. So long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a true, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. Okay? A tree of life, not the tree of life. We're not talking about replanting the tree of life. The tree of life doesn't show up again until the new earth in Revelation 22. But she is a tree of life in, in a metaphoric way, in a metaphoric sense, and we can understand it on that basis. You know, We can talk about something in the historical past and use it as a metaphor and say, you know, this is a you know, such and such. And uh, we can get that. And just in case you missed it, um, he, uh, David even goes back to creation to, to put it in that context. By uh, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So just in case the reader misses the fact that this tree of life reference is going back to creation, um, Proverbs goes back to creation there in that in that way. All right. So that's uh, the first item in the parental wisdom section. It comes back three more times in the uh, personal and public wisdom section. Proverbs 11.30. 
Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of... I'm trying to see if it has a larger context. We want to expand in this as well. There's a tremendous back and forth here between the righteous and the wicked and uh, what it is that we inherit and what it is that we uh, that we deal with. Because this is not a father begging his child anymore. This is now a child that's standing in his own generation as an adult son who either has to live the Word of God or not live the Word of God and face the consequences in that in that way. And so um, in verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. So how do you live as an adult in this fallen world? Are you trusting in your money to bail you out? Or are you walking by faith, trusting in the Word of God? He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. So there's a contrast there too, uh, in terms of troubling our house, blessing our house, that living wisdom is not only a smart idea for me, but it has the impact in my wife, in my kids, in my family, in my extended family. See, and that uh, that's huge, the day you realize that. That's... Uh, and I probably should have learned it earlier than I learned it, but it, for me, it was my wedding night. And for me, it was, uh, I thought, wow. Okay, thinking, this is scary stuff. Okay? Because when you're a single guy, eh, okay, you're a single guy, and you, you make a dumb choice, you take your lumps, you move on, you know, you screw up. Well, okay, I was dumb, I won't do that again, or, or whatever, you know. But, you know, yeah, there's sowing and reaping, there's, there's laws, there's consequences, there's whatever, but, you know, if I mess up, it's just me. I'll deal with it, you know. I don't want to do that again, so I'll learn from that. I'll, but when, once it just hit me that, that first morning of being a married man, I thought, wow, wait a minute. If I, if I mess up now, it's not just me. If I mess up now, if I make a dumb choice now, if I screw up now... It's not just me dealing with it. Now Sharon's got to deal with it. Now there's more than just me. And then the kids start coming along. And then, wow, now if I mess up, they're going to get hurt. Don't want that to happen. So to trouble your own house, that's not what we're designed to do. What is it we're designed to do? We're designed to lead our household in the things of righteousness. Anyway, and along with that is this tree of life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. And so now, not only can I partake of the tree of life, if my Christian walk is what it should be, I now become a source of, of this tree of life fruit in those that I'm blessing, in those that I'm benefiting. And uh, I want to win souls. So there's a, a benefit there. Uh, Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And this was not that long ago, actually, a couple chapters back. Remember this one? Hope deferred makes the heart sick when we're hoping and we don't see something, and when we just wait and wait and wait and we never see anything. And the fact is, the longer we don't see it, the worse it gets. Yeah, that's a, that's a terrible thing. But thankfully, what do we have available for us? We have faith. We have faith that can see what the eyes don't see. We have a desire fulfilled is the sense that God has his plan and it's his desire being fulfilled. And if that means he never gives me this thing that I want, then I better just stop wanting it because I want what he's giving me. 
desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And so we just keep our eyes on the Lord. We watch what He fulfills. We seek His desire to be fulfilled. And there's a tree of life metaphor that's applied there. And then finally, the one we're looking at here this morning, Proverbs 15, 4, a soothing tongue. A soothing tongue. So you've got somebody in need, you might be the tool right there with your soothing tongue. You might be right there to say the right word at the right time. And you go, oh my, I can't do that. (laughs) I'm never saying the right thing at the right time. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. I'm always saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment. It's only it's about an hour later on the drive home that I think, you know what I should have said was such and such. Okay? Well, guess what? Spiritually speaking, this is why I think faith rest is so beautiful. When you're walking with the Lord, when you're in wisdom, when you're yoked to Jesus Christ, when you are so in tune with what He's doing, and you find yourself in a position, you find yourself at a ministry moment, And all of a sudden it hits you, this is a ministry moment, okay? (laughs) And you're face-to-face with somebody, and they're hurting, and they just asked you something, and you're like, all right, what do you do? You say, uh, excuse me, I'm going to listen to an MP3 real quick and try to get some doctrine. I'm trying to, can't do that. This is, it's crunch time. You're in that, you're in that moment. This is the ministry moment. And even worse, or better, however you want to phrase it, you're in that ministry moment and God in His love and His grace, God put you there instead of somebody that you think would do better than you. Man. Because He put you there. This is your ministry moment. This is your opportunity. And so you're the one with a soothing tongue. You're the one, and and notice the, the corollary, from soothing tongue is perver- is perversion. So the best thing, you've got to be in fellowship. You're walking with the Lord. And so, and there's not a lot of time, maybe just a real quick under your breath kind of a, all right, Father, help me. And go from there. Okay? And then relax about it. Relax about it. Just jump in. Okay? Grab it with both hands. Tree of fruit, fruits in both hands. Grab it with both hands. And then just start talking. Start and offer to pray with them. Offer to talk with them. Share a verse. Whatever comes to your mind because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to give you in that moment what you are to say. In that crisis moment, in that ministry moment, He's put you right there. You're right here, right now. You're yoked to Jesus Christ. Man, just say, all right, Lord, pop in my head what you want me to say. And just start talking. And you may not have a clue what you're even saying. And, uh, and, and, and uh, I saw Ralph do this one time, and in in we went to visit uh, Nell Bean at the, at the hospital, and, and, uh, and I was just kind of tagging along, and, and, uh, and I'm watching Ralph, and, and uh, we walked out of there, and I'm like, I was impressed. I was like, wow. <laughs> and uh, Ralph says, well, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it, just, it was a verse that he and Dorothy had read earlier that morning, and he thought maybe it would be useful, you know. And so he just read the same verse that he and Dorothy had read that morning. He didn't know, you know. There's no manual that says, you know, in this time, in this place, use this verse. You just, you're just going as the Spirit leads. You're going as the Lord leads. You're going with what seems best, okay? And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit uses things. And, and maybe, maybe you didn't have the best verse. The Holy Spirit still uses it because we have the best God, 
Isn't that great? So, um, yeah, no perversion, because that crushes the spirit. You have the soothing tongue. You're providing the tree of life. And what are they getting? They're getting refreshed. They're getting rejuvenated. They're getting the, their, their spiritual vitality is what's built up. See, remember, the, the literal tree of life gives a physical vitality, physical health to mortal beings. But this metaphoric tree of life that is the Word of God gives us our spiritual vitality, our spiritual renewing. It's the washing of water with the Word that cleanses any believer at any time. So we have that. Now, this fourth and final tree of life reference in Proverbs is contrasted with a crushed spirit. And that crushed spirit only shows up twice in the Bible, here in Isaiah 65. And to me that's interesting because Isaiah 65 is new heavens and new earth. Uh, when we have chapter 66 and 67 of Isaiah, we're, uh, we're looking to the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what a provision with our tree of life uh, metaphor. But a crushed spirit, you know, the spirit is crushable. The term for crushing, the term for breaking, there's different terms that can be used, but um, they're, they're, they're clear. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture. That's the, that's the crushing, that's the, that's the fractured spirit. And so there's no question that the spirit can be fractured, that, uh, that, that the soul can be sick. The biblical care of souls is what we're about here with the Word of God. Because um, if it is so broken so as to be crushed, what's the answer there? So, uh, Isaiah 65, and this is looking forward. Um, Boy, I don't want to read the whole whole chapter. But we have... uh, so many things to look forward to. Israel, this is all Israel's inheritance in the millennium and on the new earth. Uh, verse 13 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. You know, he's, he's, he takes tribulation to bring them into the kingdom, and uh, all of the adversaries are going to be cast down while God's servants will be lifted up. Uh, behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. That's the crushed spirit. This is what the unbeliever has to look forward to. This is actually an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. You will wail with a broken spirit or a crushed spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. That's the context then that introduces, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So um, we have issues here. Crushed spirit, broken spirit. Issues that thankfully you and I as believers should not have to deal with. If we, if we have a season of testing, if we have a season where it seems like we're going through those kind of things, well then we have a tree of life provision to renew that spirit, do we not? And that's the Word of God. Okay, And so we have the opportunity there. Alright. 
Next week we'll come back and we'll be ready for 15.5 and we'll talk about the uh, reproof. And again and again, parental discipline continues to be effective again and again and again in adult life. Even though we don't have parents reproving us anymore, we still have the memories and the training and the discipline of what it was back then. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. And so we continue to learn from our reproofs in life, even as adults. Even as adults, we continue to learn from the reproofs in life. And it may be that it comes from a boss, and maybe it comes from a pastor, maybe it comes from some other kind of temporal authority or spiritual authority. Uh, but just because we're no longer under parental discipline, we still listen and remember back to what our parents told us when we were under parental discipline. And it's still true. It's still true. Everything my mom said, everything except the chicken on the lip thing, uh, that wasn't true. But the, the spiritual lessons my parents gave are still true to this day. All right. Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for this time today. I thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. Uh, thank you for opening our eyes to scriptures. Might we live it, Father, because we need it. Metaphorically, it's a tree of life. We want to grab with both hands and uh, just make use of the, the rejuvenating, revitalizing, the healing power of the, the tree of life, Father. It's ours through the Word of God today to uh, build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man. So, Father, thank you for this spiritual provision. Though the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. So, Father, we give you the praise and glory on this day in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.